Hi, this is Dan Silvestri. And Tom Pizzato. With SpyMovieNavigator.com and our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. Today, Tom and I are decoding the Alfred Hitchcock spy movie from 1936 called Sabotage. It was called The Woman Alone in the U.S. release. And we're going to give you 10 good reasons why you should watch this classic spy movie. All right. Here's a quick summary of the movie. There's trouble in London prior to World War II as a series of events that seem to be sabotage is happening in London. Obviously, the work of some terrorist person or persons. This man, Carl Verloc, played by Oscar Homolka, is part of the group, but he appears to be a regular citizen as he's a local movie theater owner. His wife, played by Sylvia Sidney, is becoming suspicious, though, and so is Scotland Yard, who assigns a detective, Sergeant Ted Spencer, played by John Loder, to track down what is happening. Verloc, a pretty evil guy, uses his wife's little brother Stevie, played by Desmond Tester, to deliver a bomb, along with film canisters, to this one particular spot in London. Yeah, it was the underground at Piccadilly Square that he was supposed to take this thing to. Right, during like a mayor's event or something. Now, you say this is her little brother Stevie, and I was actually surprised that it was her brother and not her son. Yeah, kind of like, you know, in in License to Kill, we talk about how in the limo with Della, it's her uncle. And we just assumed it was her father. Right. Here, I just assumed that this that Stevie was her son until we found out later. Yeah, yeah, I I did, too. In the beginning, you think, okay, it's got to be her son. But it is her little brother. And this Verloc guy uses him. And we'll see what happens. So Hitchcock does his usual masterful work, building tension and suspense amidst great camera angles and photography, all enhancing the desperate situation that we're in. All right. So he does that fabulously yeah, in this movie. It does. And it's great in this movie. And the actors in general in this movie are superb. All right. So here's 10 reasons why you got to watch this spy movie. Number one, it's Hitchcock. And wow, <laughs> 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 I mean, Hitchcock was terrific even in his early movies, and this is one of them. Sabotage is really based on the Joseph Conrad 1907 novel The Secret Agent about a woman who discovers that her husband, a London shopkeeper, is a terrorist. Now, let's not confuse this movie with Alfred Hitchcock's 1936 movie, the same year this one came out, called Secret Agent, with Peter Lorre, Madeline Carroll, and John Gielgud, that was based on a W. Somerset mom story. And, and we, have, to, we have a podcast where we talk about that movie. We do. And it, not to be confused also with Saboteur, <laughs> a 1942 <laughs> Hitchcock movie. But, <laughs> <laughs> well, and there was actually one in like the 1990s that came out called Sabotage. I don't yeah, remember the year. Yes, but. yes, there was. But this movie, Sabotage was ranked through Time Out magazine in 2017 as the 44th best British film ever. (laughs) So, if you are a Hitchcock fan, you must watch this movie. If you're a spy movie fan, you must watch this movie. If you're both, well, okay, enough said. (laughs) And, and And one nice thing is you can find it online without having to pay for it. Yes, you can. Um, and they, you know, the, some of the copies, it's it's an old black and white, so some of the copies, you know, look around because <laughs> um, yeah. there are varying qualities. Yeah, and now, 
Hitchcock's black and white movies are spectacular because yeah. of the lighting and camera angles and everything else. Awesome. All right, that's your first reason. <laughs> yeah, now, you, you did say it's based on Conrad's novel, but let's just say it didn't strictly follow the novel. <laughs> no, it was more loosely based on the novel, kind of like the 39 Steps that Hitchcock did. It was loosely based on John Buchan's novel. All right, the second reason, you got to watch this movie. This movie is set before World War II, and it is about a spy or spies living among us as normal citizens. This is brilliant, as today, literally, there are thousands of such spies living in foreign countries as, quote, ordinary citizens. And this Conrad story from 1907 is all over this, and Hitchcock brings it to the screen brilliantly. I mean... Yeah, no, I've, I've got a couple questions on that. Yeah. Okay, so you say that, you know, there's thousands of spies living in foreign countries as ordinary citizens. Is Verloc a spy that they planted or was he an ordinary citizen that they turned? We never really know that. No, we don't know that. And they never do tell us that in this story. One of the unnerving things in the story is we don't get the background of Vorlock or what country he's even working for. So we don't really know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That's part of the intrigue, I guess. It is. I mean, the intrigue, it, it just permeates every scene here, Hitchcock, the genius at work here. You'll see handwritten notes that play a large part of the suspense here. Like there's one that says, London must not laugh on Saturday because they had laughed during the short blackout in the beginning of the movie that was caused by, as we discover, Verloc. And yeah, another no, note. This, this, was, this was kind of, I understand why they have the note of London must not laugh. Like they were offended that, the Londoners laughed yeah, with the yeah. blackout. Was it a big enough trauma? Well, yeah, A, was it a big enough trauma? And B, I didn't get why you would have laughed if you were involved in it. Yeah, <laughs> so. I think it was short, and it was like, oh, oh okay, um, it's all over. Like the people at the theater wanted their money back because they couldn't show the movie and yeah. all that kind of stuff. And then, oh, oh, the lights go back on kind of quickly. So yeah, it was like... Maybe it's blackouts or brownouts are more commonplace today. So Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? They were probably happy to have electricity. <laughs> okay, so back to the notes. Go ahead. Yeah, and back to the notes. There's another note that said, don't forget the birds will sing at 145. Ooh, that's alluding to when a bomb might go off or is planned to go off. And, of course, the tension with the boy, Stevie, carrying the explosives unbeknownst to him and the viewer wondering if he will make it and blow up with a lot of other people or blow himself up or will he survive this? And we see him on the bus and the clock getting closer to 145. You really feel for this lad and you just feel like, oh my God, let's get him out of this situation. Well, he, and the thing, I found, the thing I found interesting with that was that the everything's set that it's going to go off at 145. Yeah. Verloc tells Stevie he's got to have it there by 130. Yep. I mean, he wants Stevie out of there. Yeah, he does. He did not intend to make And so, so, so Stevie's sitting there watching the clock, and it's just ticking by, and it passes 130. And you know, he obviously doesn't know what's going to happen at 145, but we do, yeah. which just increases that tension. Yeah, yeah. He got caught up, Stevie, on the way with some kind of uh, street show thing going on. He got pulled in to, to do some stuff, and that's why he was a little delayed. But he doesn't know, like you said. 
at one forty-five, something yeah. going to happen. But it is it is great use of suspense. It is, and you know, classic the way Hitchcock does it, right? Yeah. And the, the, all of the shots of Stevie getting stopped on his way to, on his mission to get this thing dropped off yeah. because he's carrying a film canister. He can't take public transportation. So he's got to walk, and the stuff he runs into along the way yeah. was kind of interesting. All right, spoiler alert. If you want to skip this next section, skip ahead about 33 seconds. Yeah. Now, and- what happens to Stevie in this movie, Hitchcock has said, is his regret from the movie. Mm-hmm. He wished he didn't show it. Yeah. And um, I actually think the showing of it added to it. Yeah, I do too. I could see what I could see Hitch's point in showing it because really we'll talk about this in a couple of minutes too. You you see this character and you're you're really pulling for the kid because the kid is innocent. Absolutely. Innocent. Yeah, the kid has no idea what's going on. No. So there you go. So that's the second good reason why you need to watch this thing. It's really a brilliant setting of these ordinary citizens as spies. The third reason. Now, Dan, you mentioned that Sabotage does this, and they never really tell us what country or organization right. that Verloc works for or really any of the network of people involved in the Sabotage. Yeah, we don't know. I mean, we, we definitely want to know. Now, in 1907, when Conrad wrote the novel, Hitler was forming his idealisms in Austria and Germany. And, mm. and in the movie, 1936, before World War II, so we don't have a concrete connection in the movie to Hitler, Germany, or really any other entity. No, they don't talk about it. Comes it. off okay, but I still want to know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, and in the novel, Verloc's first name was Adolf. Yeah. So and they changed they changed it for Carl for the movie. Yeah, they changed it to Carl for the movie because you know, Hitler was a known commodity at the time where the movie's coming out, of course. So they changed it to that, probably not to make that connection. Because they didn't want to make the connection to Germany or Hitler or anything else, but it does. That's one thing about the movie that kind of does bother you. Yeah, you kind of want to know. Yeah, and it's kind of similar to what happens in the 1939 movie that we've done a podcast episode on, called Q Planes. Oh yeah, right. Or Clouds Over Europe, where the enemy is not positively stated in that one as well. It's definitely implied, but it's never overtly said. Yeah, yeah. Another movie with two names. So yeah, Tom, the third reason was Sabotage successfully pulls off not telling us what country or organization this spy network works for. So yeah, we want to know, but they pull it off and our willing suspension of disbelief goes right along with one. So Dan, what's the fourth reason? Uh, Oscar Homolka is the fourth reason. Yeah, (laughs) we love Oscar Homolka. You remember Oscar Homolka from the 1966 movie Funeral in Berlin and how magnificent he was. Well, here he is 30 years earlier, and we see him early in his career and as a superb actor, terrific, fabulous acting, fantastic performance, Charming and evil at the same time. Reminded me a little bit of Edward G. Robinson when he could pull that off in films, like maybe Key Largo or something. It's, it's kind of weird. But, yeah, it's funny uh, you make that Edward G. Robinson comment, because as I was watching this thing, I thought there were a couple of shots where Homolka really looked like Robinson. No, I can see that. The yeah. angles and the lighting and everything on it. Yeah. Um, but any movie that has Oscar Homolka starring in it, I'm likely to like. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you look at Oscar's 
facial expressions. I mean, they're priceless. Again, that one shot of his face at the aquarium when he's talking to this guy who's kind of his lead guy who's going to tell him what to do next and so on for terrorist stuff is intense. It's stern. It's determined. All in a couple of seconds you get this. So that's worth more than the thousand words you could write about a shot like that. And again, when he meets the man who runs the bird shop, who is also the explosives expert, lots of intrigue and a lot captured in Oscar's facial expression. So there's your fourth reason, Oscar Homolka. <laughs> He's just terrific. That's a good reason. Yeah. <laughs> All right, your fifth reason, Hitchcock was always outspoken about what he wanted. And that's what made his movies so spectacular. But in this movie, for the Detective Spencer part, he wanted to work again with Robert Donat, who he worked with in the 1935 movie, The 39 Steps. But for one reason or another, like he was under agreement with another firm, another film agency, or there were some health issues, I think, or both, he could not do this film. Hitchcock was not happy with John Loder playing the part. So... You have to love Hitchcock for this. He is so dedicated to what he wants to do. But he had to take Loder here. Loder wasn't horrible, but he's no Oscar, and he's he's certainly no Robert Donat. But I, I see. I, no, I actually had no problem with him at all in this role. Well, here's what I the, think. Here's the character's kind of goofy. Yeah. Here, here's what I think kind of maybe is the angle. I think maybe Loder was a little too clean-cut looking for Hitchcock and for what this role was going to be. While Donat has a bit of an edge to him, and maybe Spencer needed that little bit of an edge here. Maybe that's what Hitchcock was kind of looking for. He plays the part of Scotland Yard detective posing as this green grocer next to the theater so he can gather all this information on Verloc. And you're right, he wasn't bad. But I think maybe that little bit of an edge is what Hitchcock was looking for. Well, that could, that could be because, you know, like I, I said, I, I had no problem with it. Yeah. But again, but then, you know what? Then again, I am not, El- I'm not Hitchcock. <laughs> yeah. No. And, and again, you know, if you're, if you didn't know Hitchcock was, was looking for work with Robert Donat again, you'd probably look at this and go, man, that was pretty good. You know, he, he actually yeah. was pretty good. All right. All right. So let's talk about the sixth reason. Yeah. And because Verloc owns a movie theater, mm-hmm. the Bijou, the Bijou, instead of a shop, like was in the Conrad novel, Mm -hmm. let Hitchcock employ a lot of scenes in the movie theater. And he was able to use this to show what he wanted to show of contemporary movies that might be playing there. Yeah, that was kind of cool. And there was one particular scene that was from a 1935 Disney movie called Who Killed Cock Robin? Mm -hmm. Now, of course, Who Killed Cock Robin was based on a poem from the 1700s. And in the Disney version, well, there's some confusion as to who killed Cock Robin, and it turns out he's not dead after all. He was shot with a Cupid arrow and fell in love with Jenny Wren. There you go. He's not, he wasn't dead. He was resting. So here in Sabotage, it could represent Verloc's ideology. He's killing for the right reasons. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> or it could represent Spencer falling for Mrs. Verloc, which would be kind of pretty clever. Yeah, which is something that's the underlying theme here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and Bijou yeah. means small and elegant. Perhaps what Mr. Verloc thought of his sabotage duties in the big picture of things. Well, that's a good connection. And I'm sure it's no coincidence Hitchcock picked that. <laughs> so there you go. All right. Spoiler alert. If you haven't seen the movie, 
You can skip ahead about 40 seconds if you want to skip this part. So now when I saw this, I almost felt that Who Killed Cock Robin was going to lead to Stevie's return. Mm-hmm. Maybe for some reason he didn't die in the explosion. Mm-hmm. Well, we know what happened, but when I, you know, when you put the Who Killed Cock Robin part of this in here, it's like, oh, does he come back? And yeah. surprises. We kind of always hoping he would. Yeah. And, and even after the explosion, you're hoping he would because you yeah. you don't really see him. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Getting blown up, like we didn't see Bond get blown up at the end of No Time to Die either. All right. So <laughs> anyway. As for Verloc thinking that his sabotage duties were small and elegant, remember he said that he didn't really want to do anything that would cause a loss of life. He said that in the aquarium to his his man, his guy who was telling him what to do. Yeah. He knew his second action would cause death, and this did bother him. Like you said, he didn't intend for the boy Stevie to be in harm's way or in danger. There's your sixth reason. The seventh reason, the opening scenes are great. A light bulb, the power grid is going out. You see this light bulb, and London is going dark because sand was deliberately put into the power generators. So sabotage. And a close-up of Oscar Homolka as Carl Verloc. This is a great sequence that draws you into the movie quickly. You see the chaos and response from citizens in the dark now, including the patrons who are at the movie theater who want their money back. That's their biggest concern. The lights are going on. We want our money back. We can't see the movie. We see (laughs) Verloc coming back home and then pretending he was home all along. So we immediately suspect him as the saboteur, of course. So that's not a secret like in many other Hitchcock movies. The audience knows up front a lot of what's going on before the characters in the movie do. So solid start of the movie, and it successfully draws us in. Of course, we expect that a hitch. <laughs> yeah, abs- absolutely. Right? Yeah, it, it really does suck you in really quickly. Yeah, terrific. So there's number seven. And number eight, Tom? Of course, there is the romantic angle here that we mentioned as the detective, Ted Spencer, falls for Mrs. Verloc as things begin to become clear to everyone. Yeah. And there's tension with the boy delivering the film canisters for Mr. Verloc. Mm-hmm. And again, with that are the explosives. It's all neatly wrapped into a logical flow of the story with many components. Now, there are some lighter moments along the line, and you need them. Yeah, there are. And so in the, in the aquarium where Verloc is meeting the, the, his handler who gives him the orders, there's a young couple, arm in arm, and this young man who's got these really big glasses on, he says to the young woman about the oysters, this bivalve's rate of fertility is extremely high. After laying millions of eggs, the female oyster changes her sex. <laughs> to which the lady he's with says, hmm, I don't blame her. <laughs> that's about as sexy as this movie gets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's a great line. And at a moment where we needed a little relief because Verloc was just being told by his handler, you're going to be blowing some people up and killing people. So this is a nice moment where we could get whew, a little break. In time, very nicely. Yeah, very nice. All right, so Dan, what about number nine? What's right. nine? number nine reason? Number nine, the camera work. I mean, it's tremendous with silhouettes. Wait, I, wait. a Hitchcock movie has great camera work. I'm yeah, shocked. Yeah. Every <laughs> damn time. And here's an early one with terrific camera work. And the fact it's black and white 
you really pay more attention even to the camera work, the lighting and the angles and so on. So here you got great camera work with silhouettes to create mystery, close-up facial shots, eye-level shots as though we're there looking ourselves and more. Even some below-eye-level shots kind of looking up half three quarters up like that and it's all creating more and more suspense for us and like i said all in black and white so the lighting is critical and important and it's done supremely well also the sound effects are terrific when mr verloc is approaching his wife in their flat near the end when she knows it's him who's the bad guy who's the saboteur how ah, the squeaking of his shoes <laughs> is so eerie and frightening as he gets closer to her. We are wondering with each squeak what he will do to her. <laughs> it's just like exactly what Hitchcock wanted there. And he delivers supreme. This, this, this Foley work is fantastic. If you don't know that phrase, it's the, yeah. the sound stuff that gets done as they do the sound work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I'm pretty sure they use the technique that I know they used in Disney movies to make those noises as he was squeaking up. And I know in the Disney movies, they would take, I don't have a leather wallet with me or I'd, or I'd do it in the mic. You take a, a, a leather wallet real close to the mic and you bend it back and forth and it kind of makes that noise. Okay. And I'm not positive that's what they did here, but it sure sounds like that's the same effect yeah. that a Foley artist would do there. And it, and, it, and it adds to the tension of what's going on. Oh, uh, yeah. The impact that sound has, because you are now wondering, like I said, with each squeak, what will he do when he gets there to his wife? Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the movie, you could skip ahead about 14 seconds here. Of course... He goes for the carving knife. They were eating, and there's a carving knife on the platter. He goes for the carving knife, but she grabs it first, and you don't see it exactly happening, but she stabs him. As she leaves the flat with Spencer, she sees a repent ye and believe sign as a religious person is holding this sign, reflective, of course, what she has just done. So that yeah, talk about I, a slap in the face. Yeah, that I thought was brilliant kind of set up there because she just did this thing even spencer doesn't know she did this and then she sees this sign repent <laughs> repent ye and believe i mean that was brilliant brilliant hitchcock stuff there fabulous there are a few more great scenes towards the end and the bird shop owner is headed to verloc's place to retrieve the birdcage because his wife was concerned that there'd be evidence against him and then tie them into this explosion but Scotland Yard is following this guy, and their plan is to arrest him when he gets there. So okay, he does so let, let, me, let me stop you for a second, Dan. Yeah. All right. Yes, this is a 1936 movie. Yep. And yes, there are a lot of Hitchcock fans that have probably seen this movie. Yep. We're giving people 10 reasons why they should see this movie. So if you haven't seen the movie, let's not give away the ending. Yeah, we won't give away the ending. That's a good idea. And whether you've seen the movie already you want to watch it again for these 10 reasons. If you haven't seen the movie, you got to watch it for these 10 reasons. All right, so that's number nine, and we got one more. So for number 10 here, Dan, yeah. we want to talk about the influences of this movie on future movies and also how the past may have influenced this movie a bit as well. Okay. But this is a very early spy movie, so it will help set the stage for what other spy movies do. Yeah. And to start... I'm going to talk about 
there's a scene when Verloc tells Stevie he has to go. He, Stevie again, Stevie doesn't know about the bomb, right. but Verloc is very worried about the timing. Yeah, and yeah. he ends up yelling at Stevie, like, just go, go, you know, that kind of a thing. Yeah, why don't you and, just go or something, he says. Yeah. yeah, so there's a bunch of different Bond movies that have this thing where people are worried about explosions. They know they're going to happen. Yeah. And yeah. how they get a little testy as it comes closer to the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, I can think of the poppy fields and Live and Let Die at Kananga's headquarters. And yeah, yeah, he's blowing those up. That. Yeah, he blows those up, and there's a little tension with there. And that's uh, going to be a diversion, I think. But uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then you get the tension in A View to the Kill, where Mayday's riding on that thing, trying to get the bomb out of the mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to wonder whether she's going to make it or not. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And she's and she's getting kind of agitated, like just go get out of here. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm I'm giving it up for this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and you got Goldeneye, of course. You got the lipid bombs that 007 and 006 were planting in, in the pre-title sequence, and then you got, I think, in the world, in the world is not enough. You got Renaris bomb that's targeting a Russian nuclear testing facility, and Thunderball, of course, with the nuclear bombs that were stolen by Largo. I mean, there's plenty more. So there's a lot of influence, I think, with this explosion concept. But of course, in in spy movies, you're going to have a lot of explosions. Well, that's true. Uh, now, the the thing that this, in my mind, when I saw this scene, especially with when Stevie's on the bus, and they kept cutting back to the time and the and the package with the bomb in it, and they kept going back and forth, it really reminded me of an episode of the TV show Columbo, and the episode was called <laughs> Short Fuse. Roddy McDowell's playing this character, and and his character was called Roger, and they're on a gondola and he there's a bomb in a cigar case well colombo rigged up a cigar case to look like the one roger planted to kill someone and colombo convinces him that the cigar case somehow survived and the car just crashed for a different reason and they have it here on the gondola lift and roger is very worried of course that the timer will go off that that's what was going on yeah and you, they keep showing the cigar case, and he keeps looking at the cigar case. And the tension of that is he's freaking out because he knows this thing's going to explode. And so he's just totally panicking. And his reaction there kind of had me kind of feel a little bit about when Verloc yelled at Stevie of, you know, you've got to go. Yeah. But also then that whole thing on the bus where they kept cutting back and forth between the time, the people, and mm-hmm. the package again. It all just kind of felt very, very much like short fuse. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's Colombo. It's not exactly spy stuff, but it isn't just hey, you know, a spy movie doesn't necessarily have to only influence other spy movies. Yeah, I, oddly enough, I just watched that episode of Colombo the other night. It's from season <laughs> one, and it's the eighth episode. It's that's true. true. I just watched the thing, and yep. now you know. Speaking of Colombo. Here's an interesting thing now that we're talking about Columbo. They never reveal his first name. Throughout the entire series, they never call him by his first name. He's always Lieutenant Columbo. Except in Season 1, Episode 5, called Deadweight, where he shows his ID to the killer, who's Eddie Albert, played by Eddie Albert. For a split second, you can see it reads Frank Columbo. So there you go, trivia folks. If you ever have Columbo questions, what's Columbo's first name? Frank. And they never showed it again. 
and they never talked about it again. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Okay, so let's get back to f- spy movies. Yeah. And something here from this movie that I think influences future spy movies is the use of Ted Spencer having to go meet with his boss. Now, Dan, you talk about in the movie the th- you you talk about the movie The Thirty Nine Steps being the first big spy movie, and in that movie, Donut doesn't have a boss to really go to on here. No. Here we've got Spencer going to his boss, getting more information about the mission, getting more orders of how to handle this from a spy perspective, mm-hmm. trying to take care of these terrorists. So we see this then 10 years later, you know, in Notorious, we get the same type of thing there. And then obviously Bond has M, uh, Harry Palmer has Dolby and Ross. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Mission Impossible, in the first one, he gets his marching orders from both Phelps and Kittredge. Uh, Swanbeck's there in Mission Impossible 2. I mean, even the recent movies, The Gray Man, All the Old Knives, and The 355, has multiple bosses getting involved, helping guide the spy. Yeah. And then, of course, you've got the fantastic Apple Plus show, Slow Horses, Mm -hmm. where Lamb was reporting to Diane Tavener. And that's a great use of this spy having to deal with the boss, not always 100% agreeing, but that spy interaction with the boss is something that this is one of the first times I can remember seeing it in a spy movie. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, there's also another minor thing that may have influenced Notorious and possibly some other spy movies. Notorious is the first one that popped into my mind here about this. About halfway through in this movie... Sabotage. Ted tells Mrs. Verloc that he's leaving the case and that he has feelings for her. In Notorious, Devlin asks to be pulled from the case, in part because he has feelings for Alicia. Of course, it wasn't going too well for him in his mind there. But <laughs> <laughs> one of the, the fact that she married some other guy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but both are Hitchcock movies, and both set the stage for a male spy falling for the female protagonist. So I think that's pretty cool. All right. So one of the things I think that's the biggest influence Sabotage has had on future spy movies is integrating action with the storyline of espionage. The explosion here really sets a tone for future spy movies. Not all, but a lot of them. Spoiler alert. If you want to skip this section, skip ahead about 30 seconds. And it was on the pioneering front, too, in letting a character that we have grown close to in the movie, Stevie in this case, the boy, die a violent and innocent death. In the first viewing, I thought for for sure, somehow, he survived. But uh, nope, nope. Yeah, this is something we've talked a couple times in this episode about, is that this happened. And so I guess we're giving away a big part of the movie when we do that, but we... Hard to talk about the movie without without yeah. doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you got to see the movie anyway. You got ten yeah. great reasons now to yeah. see this movie. I got another kind of an oddball influence on this movie. Okay. Oh boy. And this one might be a little bit of a stretch. There's a scene in Sabotage where a lady goes into a pet shop with her bird. That's that's run by the the explosives expert called the professor. Yeah. And she's complaining that the bird doesn't sing. She's bringing now, it back, like, right? She's returning it. Yeah, she's trying to return it. Now, yeah. <laughs> this is 1936. There is a very, very famous Monty Python sketch called oh the Pet Shop Sketch. All right, we're going to Monty Python. We're going to Monty Python now. Now, it's more normally 
called the dead parrot sketch, but it was actually officially called the pet shop sketch initially. Now, here in Sabotage, the professor is trying to stop her from returning this bird. Right? And he really has to work at it, and he tries to fake her out by getting all the birds to sing at the same time and telling her that her bird was singing as well. And she's like, well, his mouth's not open. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. So now let's fast forward to the dead parrot sketch. Okay. In this one, the owner hits the cage to try to fake the customer out that the parrot moved. And, <laughs> you know, obviously it doesn't work. But, again, this is a really famous routine. It's dead, I tell you. No, it's so, dead. So, <laughs> yeah, I th I'm thinking, I'm, before I do any research, I'm thinking, okay, this thing had to have some influence on it. Okay, all right. Well, what supposedly happened was this Monty Python sketch was based on a conversation that Michael Palin really had dealing with a car dealership. And he created a sketch called The Car Salesman to try to get a car returned. Okay. I mean, there are even roots to the main joke here going all the way back to 400 A.D. in Greece. Yeah, and in, in, the, in the Greek version... A man complains to a slave merchant that his new slave had died. And the slave merchant replies, when he was with me, he never did any such thing. Yeah. And then Benny Hill did something similar in 63. So this thing has potential roots all the way back to 400 AD. But I've <laughs> got to believe that sabotage, you know, without necessarily being a conscious thing, had some small part in playing to the dead parrot sketch. Correcting the code of Monty Python. <laughs> right. Yes, that was a stretch. Okay. <laughs> but we're talking about influences. Though the bird bit in Monty Python was a pretty funny bit. Well, and if you watch those two scenes, if you just watch the one scene and then watch the dead parrot sketch, yeah. it kind of feels like there's some similarity there. We should put a video together for that. All right, I'll be quiet. Yeah. <laughs> All right, oh, wait, please. you know what, Dan? I have one more question for you, Okay. We can't talk about a Hitchcock movie without talking about Hitchcock's cameo. Okay, that's good. Right. And he started, right. he started putting him in earlier and earlier because people were looking for them. So where is he in Sabotage? Did you see him or did you have to look it up? I did notice him in the beginning. and when About the, eight, eight minutes and 30 seconds in. Yeah, when the lights are dimmed from the theater and the lights go out for a short while, when they come back on and people are walking, he is one person walking past the theater from right to left and you could see him clearly on the left got a derby hat on i think yeah and he walks right past a, a light post yeah so there you go hitchcock is in the movie and that's exactly where you can find him all right all right we gave you 10 good reasons to watch this spy movie sabotage so you should let us know what you think by leaving us a voice message through our websites, buymovienavigator.com, or through our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. We would love to know what you think of this movie. We think it's a great find. If you haven't seen it, watch it. you got 10 great reasons to do so. All right, that's a wrap. 10 great reasons to watch this entertaining Hitchcock spy movie. This has been Dan Silvestri. And Tom Pizzotto. With spymovienavigator.com and our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. Please subscribe to our show through your favorite podcast app and on our YouTube channel as well. Lots of cool videos there. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate it.